so a few years ago, I had a chance to go, Clarissa and I had a chance to go to Hawaii, and, uh, and it was uh, a really exciting time for us. Uh, we flew into the island, and uh, I'll never forget uh, this journey because it was one of the scariest flights I've ever had in my life. Uh, we were coming into the island, and we were getting ready to land, and, and as we recall, uh, looking at the window, it's just seeing a dense fog. We were, we were uh, flying through a cloud. I knew we were descending, and we came out from under the, under the cloud, and uh, you sort of fly kind of next to a mountain and, uh, and head towards the landing strip. And as we were coming down, and we were on approach, and we were getting ready to, to land on the landing strip, uh, a huge gust of wind came down the mountain, and you could just feel the whole plane get, get uh, thrown off its approach. And in one of the scariest moments of my life, you could feel the pilot hit the engines. And, uh, and so like, abort, abort, you know. And, uh, and the plane uh, in power climbs back up rapidly to avoid crashing into the mountain or the runway or anything else. And, uh, and so we circled around and we tried to do another approach. And when that approach didn't work, we ended up flying to a different island, landing and waiting for the storm to pass. And I tell you that because when you're going to land a plane, uh, the approach is very important. Uh, And some of you, uh, your approach to the book of Revelation, as we end here, needs some help. And it needs some work. Because if you've approached Revelation, how you approach this book is everything. It's kind of intimidating for me to preach the book of Revelation because there is so much going on here. How do we get 22 chapters of Revelation into, into one sermon? It's, it's intimidating. But I want you to know that really it's all about your approach. Some of you have approached Revelation very differently. For many of you, the book of Revelation is a very scary thing. You know, we've all seen movies that depict the sort of the events in a, a fictitious and scary way. We've read uh, about images of heads being lopped off and blood flowing and dragons and fire and marks of the beast. And, and for some of you, your approach to the book of Revelation is just to have the willies scared out of you, you know. For some of you, your approach is different. It's just the idea of this is a mysterious book. Who can understand this book, you know? Uh, one of the reformers didn't even write a commentary on this book and, and because uh, many assume he just couldn't understand it. And it's kind of this idea of it's a mysterious book. No one can understand it. Why would I spend my time reading that? For some of you, your approach has just been that the book of Revelation is irrelevant. You can approach it and say, you know what? Who cares? Jesus is coming back. That's all that matters. In fact, uh, a long joke, standing joke about the book of Revelation is that uh, I'm a pantheist. I believe it'll all pan out in the end. And, uh, and, and some of you have that approach that, you know, the book's just really irrelevant. Jesus is coming back. Who cares? But those views lack one major consideration, and that's the fact that the whole counsel of God's word is important for us. The Bible says that every word is inspired, it's breathed of God. It's important to us. And if you've had a a view of the book of Revelation that said, I'm just going to avoid it, I don't need to read it, I don't need to spend time in this, you're missing part of the whole counsel of God's word. And this book is beautiful. The book of Revelation is the completion of God's story. It's a book of victory. It's not to be feared, but to be celebrated. John, the author of Revelation, looks forward to the return of Jesus. And for many of you who fear this book, 
I would direct you to the very last words or near the last words that John says in his book, in this revelation of Jesus to John. Basically, the second to last thing he says is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. If John was afraid of all this, why would he say, come Lord Jesus? This is because John sees what he is writing as hope. As hope. The book of Revelation is a very hopeful book. Um, And the reason that we can say it's hopeful is because we need to understand the book of Revelation in the context of all God's story that is recorded for us in his word. You know, good stories, I think, always bookend themselves. They'll start with a concept and then on the front end, and then they'll come back to that concept. And the Bible is no different. The Bible actually starts with an idea in Genesis and returns to it in Revelation. And, and it's the story is the same way. The, in Genesis, this idea here, God starts with the, the story of a tree, and he ends it with a tree in Revelation. The, the book of Genesis starts God's story with a curse, and he ends it with the curse removed. If you look at Revelation chapter 22, what Stetson read for us, it says it right here. The very end of God's story, down the middle of the street of the city, Revelation 22, 2, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Did you notice that? Same trees in Genesis. It was bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. So this is a tree that yields a crop every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any curse. Right out of the book of Genesis. God starts his story and ends his story in the same place. And what John wants us to know is that God is going to fix what was broken and restore what was lost. In Genesis, the kingdom is lost. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus came and through the cross and the resurrection, the power of the enemy is broken and the kingdom kingdom breaks in because cursed people are reconciled to God through the cross. So in Genesis, we have this idea of God's kingdom being lost and people falling into sin. And by the end, when we get to the future, the kingdom is restored and the story is completed. And this is exciting. This is exciting, this whole idea of this story being framed around a tree and a curse and a tree and a curse. At the bookends, it's God bringing all of this to resolution, and this should get us excited. And by the end, when we read the book of Revelation, we should be crying out, Come, Lord Jesus, with John. But I need to come back to this idea because really, uh, this is my big finish. And I, and I want to get to the big finish and I want to come back to the beginning of Revelation and sort of talk a little bit how when we read the book of Revelation, how we should understand this. And so, as I said, this book is about hope. The curse is broken and the kingdom is restored. The first thing we need to understand when we look at the revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John is we always need to understand when we come to a book of who's writing it. Who was the author of this book? And the Holy Spirit, through John, the Apostle wrote this. Now, John was the beloved disciple. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's the same John. John was known as the beloved disciple. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Jesus, uh, I think, referred to him in that way, and Jesus and John had a very close relationship. Um, But also, we need to recognize that when John grew older, John had a following of people, and they loved him dearly. John was a very dearly loved leader in the church. 
John was probably a cousin of Jesus. He had a brother, James. Jesus gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which uh, is always just a fantastic nickname, I think. And so uh, James and John were kind of uh, um, thought very similarly about things. And James and John were both disciples of Jesus. In Acts, we learned that John's brother, James, was killed early on. He was martyred. He was one of the first to be martyred. And, uh, but John, on the other hand, James got martyred. John, on the other hand, lived a long life. Um, John was probably very young when he became a follower of Jesus. Many have uh, assumed that he may have been young, as young as 17 or 18 years old when he began to follow Jesus. And so uh, if that's true, and if we place the writing of the Revelation of John in about the year 90 to 95, what we can understand from here is John was probably in his late 70s or early 80s when he was writing this book. Um, and so what we see is here is that, is that John lived a long time after Jesus died and rose, um, after he ascended into heaven. John was influential in the church. And in fact, he had this school that was called the School of John. And so John had followers. These followers make their appearance at the end of his gospel as they sort of pen the last few uh, sentences there in his gospel for John. Um, John was influential in the churches of Asia Minor. So this is the guy. This is, if you can imagine John being a very old man when he's writing this book, a guy that's been a long time following Jesus for a long time, who has been influential in the church for a long time, and a guy who's just deeply loved by the church. I mean, this is, this is a man who is probably the last living disciple of Jesus. He carried a great deal of influence and was greatly loved. And so this is where we find who wrote the book. Now, it's also important that we talk about the context of the book. And so where was this book written? Well, in AD 95, John is in exile. Now, the churches were being persecuted, and it wasn't uncommon for leaders of dissident groups uh, that Rome would exile their leaders. And so John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, if you were to look at this map here that Caleb put up for us, thank you, Caleb, um, it is right out here. This is a map of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and then on the left, you'll see modern-day Greece. And so uh, right in between Greece and Turkey, there's a little island called the island of Patmos. Now, John was exiled there, and for many of us think, well, that's not such a bad gig, right? You know, exiled to a Mediterranean island. He's probably got a drink with a little umbrella in it and sitting by the pool. And it's probably got a, a great, you know, vacation spot for him. But I, I can assure you that that probably wasn't the case. They did not ex exile John to a resort on the island of Patmos. John was exiled there and he was probably given nothing. And John there, when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, he had a vision which he later records for the benefit of the churches. So this is how the book of Revelation came about. John, an author loved by Jesus, loved by the early church, influential, exiled to an island. Jesus gives him a vision about what is to come, and John writes it down. Now, it's really important to understand here that John was writing to a persecuted church. Sometimes we forget to factor that church in, and, and that can really mess our interpretation of the book of Revelation up. Sometimes we forget this. 
You know, and we start to read the book of Revelation, and we talk, start to talk about things like, well, we start to read Apache helicopters and RFID chips under the skin and, you know, speculation about United Nations. And, but really, a basic principle of Bible interpretation, a basic principle of interpreting the Bible is understanding what this message meant to its original audience. And then we see the timeless principles that are there that God intended for his church. So what did this mean to the original audience? Well, sometimes we just get so sidetracked when we read this book about predicting the future. Uh, You know, Jesus said no one would know the day or the hour of his return. But he also told us to look for the signs. And sometimes we get those confused. You know, over the last 2,000 years, there have been a lot of people that assumed they knew the date and time of Jesus' return. Uh, it's early in church history, as early as 500 AD, we have a, a guy named Hippolytus, and we have uh, people even as early as 500 AD predicting the return of Jesus, and of course they were wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses, are their leaders just won't quit on this. They keep predicting the, the return of Jesus. Um, they did it in 1874, 1878, 81. 1910, 14, 18, 25, 1975, 1984. <laughs> they just keep getting it wrong. You know, uh, Harold Camping, we remember him from just a few years ago in 2011, where Harold Camping predicted on a certain date that he knew when Jesus was coming back. And when that was wrong, he came up with another date. And we have a history of people, hundreds of people saying they knew when Jesus was coming back. But in doing so, we miss the point. John was writing in this genre for a specific people and for us. And this book is about hope. We have to read it in light of the hope that Jesus brings. The curse is broken. The kingdom is restored. And Jesus wants us to know this. And he tells us this through a vision to John. When you open up your Bible to the book of Revelation, and if you're reading with us this week, uh, you know, um, you need to kind of understand a basic idea of how the book of Revelation is put together so you know what you're reading. The first uh, three chapters of the book of Revelation, if you were looking at an outline here, the first three chapters are about the seven letters to the seven churches. And so um, if you were to, to look at that, the major idea in the, in the Revelation did I have an outline, Caleb, one slide back or not? Maybe I forgot to put that in there. I forgot that. All right. Well, th- th- if you think about um, an outline of the, the book of Revelation in three sections. The first section, letters to seven churches. The second section, a vision of what is to come in, in chapters 4 to 19. So the first three chapters are these letters. The middle, biggest chunk of it is a vision for the future. And then the third section is hope for the saints. And what I want to do is sort of look at each section today and talk a little bit about what John is communicating and what Jesus is communicating through John's vision. And so let's look at this first section uh, here together. And this is the idea of overcome in chapters 1 to 3. The first thing that Jesus wants us to tell us is to overcome. That is the central message of the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, the seven letters are to the churches which John probably worked either directly or indirectly with them. And he was worked very closely with them. So if you were to look back on this map, uh, I put a circle up there. Of that. Again, that's modern-day Turkey. All these seven churches are located right on the very western part of modern-day Turkey. This was called an area called Asia Minor, 
And uh, in, in there in Asia Minor, um, there was a heavy Greek influence at the time. Of course, you can see just across the Aegean Sea there, Greece is right there. And when Alexander the Great, I talked about this two weeks ago with the Apostle Paul, when Alexander the Great spread Greek culture all over, this area was very influenced by Greek culture. Now, to each of the seven churches... John writes a, a specific letter. If you're reading in the book of Revelation and you just happen to turn back there, starting in chapter 2, we see a letter to the church at Ephesus. And we see a letter all the way through from chapter 2 through chapter 3. We see seven different letters to these seven different churches. And to each church, there's a, there's a similar pattern in the letter. The first thing that we find out is we find a praise for the church. Something they're doing well and, and something they're doing right. Then we find a rebuke. So there's a rebuke in here. And then uh, lastly, there's an exhortation or uh, a, an exhortation to overcome or to conquer. So we see a praise, a rebuke, and a challenge to overcome. This word overcome is really interesting. It appears in each of the seven letters to the churches. Overcome, overcome. Some of your Bibles might translate it conquer. And the idea here of this word is victory in the face of hardship, enduring through victory. Now, why would it be so important for these seven churches to be victorious? Why is that? Well, because there is intense persecution in their world. To the church of Ephesus, he writes, I know your perseverance. To the church of Smyrna, he writes, Do not be afraid of what you were about to suffer. To the church of Pergamum, he writes, You did not renounce your faith. In other words, what John has in mind and what Jesus specifically has in mind for each of these churches is to encourage them, to rebuke them, and then to exhort them to overcome in the face of this persecution. Christians in Asia Minor were caught between a rock and a hard place. It's really important to understand what these Christians were going through when we read this book of Revelation. Because if we don't understand what they were going through, it's hard for us to interpret all of this. The first thing you need to understand about the culture of, of, um, of this group of churches was that when you looked on that map and you saw those seven churches and how heavily they were influenced in Greek culture, you need to understand that when the Romans conquered the Greeks, they took this culture and they just said, fine, we like it. We'll take this culture. We're not going to try to change your culture. We'll just add it to what we already have. Now, what is really fascinating here in, during the time John's writing is that uh, the culture in Asia Minor of just je the general person who probably wasn't a Christian or a Jew, the, gen the general Greek person living in Asia Minor, was that um, the culture was obsessed with sexual immorality, with idol worship, with pagan practices. Sexual deviance was written into the very fabric of their culture, and Christians were being pushed towards this and abused when they didn't participate. Now, um, what, if you look at Roman history, many of us know, remember Emperor Nero, the, the, uh, and we understand that, you remember that he burned the city of Rome or was accused of burn, burning it, and at some point he blamed all the, the, that on the Christians. He needed a scapegoat, and he grabbed the Christians and said, they're the ones that burned Rome, and there was a persecution under Nero. Um, but that's before the time when John's writing here. In fact, Nero eventually... Uh, was replaced by an emperor named Domitian. And he took the persecution of Christians to the entire empire. Nero's persecution was focused mostly in Rome. Do, do, Domitian took it across the entire empire. 
And what was really fascinating is Domitian was kind of uh, a megalomaniac. He thought a lot of himself. And in fact, uh, for the Greeks, they were always kind of, there was a thin line between the king or the ruler and deity. So there was always for Greeks this thin line to say, you know what, if someone's our ruler, he might be considered God. Domitian took this and ran with it. He said, by the way, uh, I am God. And if you're going to be in my empire, you will worship me. Well, the Greeks in Asia Minor really had no problem with this. They're like, whatever, I'll bow my head. I'll add another god to the pantheon. That's fine. No problem. Bow my knee. It's what everyone's doing. No problem. But for the Jews, this was a distinct problem. Because Jews said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. The, the Jews could not bow. Um, when... When Rome conquered Greece and took over it, the land of Israel, uh, what, it was fascinating what they did. They realized right away that the Jews will die, the Jews will fight them, the Jews will never bow to their gods. And so the Romans said, you know what, we'll give you an exemption. We'll give you an exemption. If you're Jewish, you don't have to bow to the empire. Just keep in line, pay your taxes, whatnot. In the year AD 70, a very pivotal thing happened. And remember, John is writing this letter after AD 70. In AD 70, Israel rebelled, Jerusalem rebelled against Rome, and Rome and its military might squashed them. They ransacked and destroyed the city, and from that time on, the Jews had to pay a penalty. If you were Jewish and you were living in the Roman Empire, you had to pay an extra tax to the Romans just for being Jewish. If you paid your tax, if you kept in line, if you, you were allowed still to not bow to Caesar and to worship your one God. Now, this was okay for Christians for a while, because for a long time, we see in the book of Acts, that really most of the world regarded Christianity as just another sect of Judaism. You know, they had this Jesus thing, and that's fine, but they're really just Jewish, and as long as they stay in the Jewish realm. But all of a sudden, the gospel message started spreading outside of Judaism, started going to Gentiles as well. And all of a sudden, the Jews became increasingly unhappy with the Christians, to the point where the Jews said, you know what, you Christians, you aren't Jewish. Now, do you see where this put the Christians in a, between a rock and a hard place? On the one hand, they'd be just fine if they could not bow their knee to, to the Caesar because they were Jewish, They'd be just fine. But the Jewish people were kicking them out. So increasingly, they couldn't bow and deny the Messiahship of Jesus and be a Jew. And they couldn't bow to Caesar and deny the deity of Jesus. And they were caught in the middle. So if they would run to either side, they'd be fine. But they couldn't. This kind of pressure was incredible on Christians. There was an incredible pressure for them to just jump ship, to go to either side. Jesus writes to them to overcome, to be victorious, to persevere. And this is the message from Jesus. He says it over and over. Persevere, overcome, conquer. My kingdom is overflowing with blessings for you if you do. Overcome, he cries out. You and I can identify with this. You see, we understand in our culture increasingly what it means to be pushed between a rock and a hard place. 
We get it. Most people think, oh, I've never had a knife put to my throat and told that if I don't renounce Jesus, I'm going to have my throat slashed. So we've never been persecuted. But no, we can understand persecution. We get it. Our culture all over is experiencing uh, a massive shift to tolerance. And what they are is they're tolerant to anything except those who would declare that there is one way to the Father. And so there's a huge cultural expectation to, perform, to conform. You know, um, our convictions are continually challenged. Our culture is really practical polytheists. Practically, our culture says, you know what? We don't want to say there's any one God. So we'll just say all gods are the same and are going to the same place. That's really not all that different from what the Romans were teaching. Oh, we'll, you, we'll, conquer, we'll just add your God to our gods. No problem. They're all the same. Is our culture any different? And our culture, if all religions are correct, and if this polytheism that they claim is correct, they say you cannot say Jesus is the only way. And they increasingly put pressure on Christians to conform. Um, I once uh, heard a story of, of a Christian woman who was increasingly finding that in her circle of friends, she was sort of being maligned and gossiped about, and just a lot of abuse was being heaped on her behind her back. And when she finally found sort of the ringleader of this in their group of friends, uh, and when they finally sat down and talked about it, this friend said to her, who was maligning her and gossiping about her, she said, well, here's the deal. Uh, you live such a good life that you must be casting judgment on me for how I live my life. And that makes me angry. All she did was live like Jesus told her to live. The assumption was, if you don't live like I do, you must be casting judgment upon me. Friends, we live in this kind of world, and we get it. And the message that Jesus has for us, especially in this, is overcome. 1 Peter 4, whenever I hear stories like that, it reminds me of this verse. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes to the church, the world thinks it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of evil deeds and they heap abuse on you. There's a huge pressure to conform to tolerance and polytheism in our culture. Come on, they say, join us. To you, Jesus says, overcome. If you do, I am filled with blessings for you. Every church in the book of, in these, of these seven churches is given a promise for overcoming. When you're reading through this, don't miss this promise. It's exciting. There are tremendous motivations to be faithful and true to Jesus. He is a good God who promises his abundant blessing to us when he returns. When you read these seven churches, identify, read the promises, cling to them, overcome. The second, and that, that's really the message, I think, in summary of those first three chapters of the book of Revelation, is overcome. The second section of the book of Revelation is now, uh, book chapter 4 to 19, is the part that's probably um, in the most controversial. And uh, we read, really, that there's this idea that Jesus will overcome. If we were to take a, a, a survey or a, just a basic kind of understanding of what happens in chapter 4 to 19, in the first three chapters, the message is to the church overcome. In, the, in chapters 4 to 19, the message is Jesus will overcome. 
Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. This is really interesting. He says, after I look after this, and this is right after he finishes the, Jesus finishes the letters to the seven churches. John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and, and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, John said, okay, I'm going to show you what's to come. John receives a vision for the future. It's really important that we understand that uh, in this section, there are parts of this that would have made complete sense to the church who was wrestling with uh, the emperor Domitian and all the things that Rome was doing to the church. And you need to understand that there's part of this that is very clearly talking about things that they presently struggled with. There's a part of this that's very clearly pointing to the future and what will happen. As uh, chapter 4, verse 1, John is told. So some of these are future to the audience. Some of them are future still to us. It's really important that we understand in this genre of apocalypse and prophecy that we understand how a writer wrote when they wrote about the future. All throughout the Bible, when a prophet wrote about the future, this is really important to understand, they, they saw the events that were going to happen, but they couldn't always tell which one came first or how they were. It's like a mountain range. If you ever driven to the Colorado Rocky Mountains, have you ever gone west through Nebraska, and you feel like you're just driving forever through Nebraska, and you finally get to Colorado, and you're excited to be in Colorado, but it looks just like Nebraska. And then you, you keep going, and, you keep, and all of a sudden in the distance, you got, are those clouds? They kind of look like clouds, you know? And then as you go, oh, those are mountains. And as you get closer, but you're still a long ways off, you can see this entire mountain range out there. But what you can't tell when you're looking at from a distance, you can't tell which mountain is closer and which one is farther away. They just all look like mountains. You might not realize until you actually stand at the foot of the first mountain that the second mountain you could see is miles and miles beyond the first mountain because you don't have perspective. That's oftentimes how the writers uh, of the prophets write. When they're looking at events in the future, they're just laying them out from their perspective. As we get closer, we begin to see which pieces are, are, more, are, are closer and which ones are more distant. That's how the pro prophets wrote. That's why sometimes with Jesus, he's talked about a, as a conqueror, and sometimes he's talking about, in a very similar passage, as a lamb of God slain for the world. The, the prophet couldn't necessarily see the, the time difference in there. That's a lot of what is happening in the book of Revelation in this middle section. But what we're going to see is that Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain and is victorious. Some might uh, look at the book of Revelation and object. You go, this is a bloody and gross and horrific book. But one of the principles you need to understand is that overwhelmingly the blood in this book, overwhelmingly the blood is the blood of the Lamb. This book is about hope. The curse is broken. The kingdom is restored. When we were talking through the Gospels uh, last month, you may remember I talked a little bit about this idea of the kingdom of Jesus and this kingdom upside down. How really the kingdom of God, especially I talked about it in the book of Mark, when we looked at this concept of the kingdom upside down, 
The first, in the, in the kingdom upside down, the first are last and the last are first. The greatest one is the servant of all and everything works upside down it seems. The son of most high God is slain by the very ones he created. And in the book of, so the entire kingdom is sort of this kingdom of upside down thinking to the world. But when we get to Revelation 4 to 19, what we're going to see is the kingdom upside down works. They're the ones that are victorious. And the whole kingdom of God that seems so counter to the world we live in works. Jesus overcomes. Justice prevails. When you read chapter 4 to 19, this middle section, you're going to see all kinds of imagery, all kinds of symbols, all kinds of things. But what you need to understand is the Lamb is victorious. Jesus overcomes and justice prevails. He's the one that makes the wrongs right. He's the one who ultimately brings justice. Peter told us that God had been patient with holding his hand of judgment. Now the saints who are being martyred are crying out. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The martyrs are crying out for justice. And Jesus is a God who brings justice. Have you ever watched a movie? And you've been watching that movie, and early on in the movie, the bad guy is introduced, you know? The, the, the character, and you immediately see this bad guy, and he does something so horrific that you just, you not only know he's the bad guy right away, but all the way, you're like, is he going to get caught for this? Have you ever watched a movie? The bad guy is just so, it's like so awful. And he gets away with it. And you're watching this movie, and you're like, ah, no, 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 no. This can't end this way. You know, you're watching the movie all throughout. The bad guy's getting away with it. The bad guy's getting away with it. And then at the very end of the movie, justice happens. And you want to raise your hands up and cry out and say, yes. God has been patient. He's been patient with, with humanity. He has been patient wanting many to come to a faith in Jesus Christ. He's been patient. But justice will come. Jesus will be victorious. Jesus overcomes, and we who are saints get to be victorious with him. This is exciting stuff. Listen to how exciting it sounds in chapter 19. Just listen to the sound of victory. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar, I mean, can you imagine? The roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting out, Hallelujah. Can you just imagine the multitude of voice upon voice upon voice, the roar of celebration, crying out, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupt the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried out, Amen and Hallelujah! It is a victorious scream. It's so hope-filled. Justice is handed out. 
by the righteous hand of our God, Jesus overcomes. The last section of the book of Revelation, if you were to divide this into three basic sections, you can get a lot more complicated with it, but if you were to divide it into three basic sections, the last section is about the kingdom restored. The first three are the message is overcome. The second big part is Jesus will overcome. And the third part of this message is that the kingdom is restored. To understand the end of the story, this is where we have to return to the beginning of the story. Let me read for you really quickly from the book of Genesis. It's about as far away in your Bible as you can get. And look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. God had created the whole world and everything in it. And he says, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is very important to understand. Most of us didn't realize there were two trees there. Most of us remember there was a tree there and Adam and Eve were not told not to eat the fruit from it, but the, Eve grabbed the fruit and, and uh, she was deceived by the serpent. A- Adam did it willingly. He grabbed and, and in open rebellion against God, they rebelled. And we remember that. Many of us know about this one tree. People and creation, all creation paid the price for this. But what we didn't realize is that there was a second tree there, the tree of life. When Adam and Eve fell, when humanity fell, God cut Adam and Eve out of the garden. Do you remember that? There was like a, there was flaming swords keeping them out of the garden. Cutting them off from what? From the tree of life. This was an act of God's mercy. When God's kingdom was lost, when the curse was instilled, when humanity fell and was separated from God, God in his great mercy kept them from the tree of life. Why? Because he had a plan to redeem them. To partake of the tree of life in our unredeemed sinful state would be an eternal death. Revelation chapter 22. This tree of life, we see it again. And in Revelation 22, John writes, On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Don't you see what's happening here? In Genesis, the tree, is the people are cut off. God's kingdom is lost and fellowship with people is broken. In Revelation, it's restored. God's kingdom is restored. There's a river there in Revelation 22, just like the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of life there, just like the Garden of Eden. And there's no curse there, just like the Garden of Eden. And it's beautiful because this tree of life brings healing. For just a moment, I want you to see the hope in this tree. Think just for a minute about how broken and damaged this world we live in is. Think how much damage sin has done to this world. Redemptions, relationships are broken because of sin. Sickness is there because of sin. Death and pain. Selfishness and sin destroy people's lives. Injustice happens for the defenseless. Relationships are broken because of sin. Injustice, selfishness. This world is broken because of sin. But think about how beautiful it is with the tree of life. 
because of the Lamb of God, because his sin was sacrificed, this is the essence of the gospel, that Jesus' blood was poured out. And on that moment when he died and rose from the dead, he was victorious over Satan. People now could be restored to relationship with him. And then in the future, the kingdom is restored. Most of us can't even imagine a world where this kingdom upside down exists all the time, where a righteous king rules and there's no corrupt politician. We, we can't even imagine a world in which what is just happens all the time. We take a breath. Can you just imagine living in a world where you just take a breath and everything feels right? Some of you know what it's like to walk around your life from day to day and go, something's not right. It's broken. Every day I feel the weight of sin's brokenness on me. Every day I feel the sorrow from death. Or every day I feel the pain that happens because of sinful people and what they've done. And we walk around and we take a breath and we just know it. It's like breathing polluted air. Like smog. And yet, one day when the kingdom is restored and we take a breath and everything will be right. This is beautiful. The child who is devastated by neglect will be made whole. The disease that ravaged a body is removed. Everything we've been fighting for in the kingdom is finally renewed. In a kingdom restored, we will scream out, this is the way it's supposed to be. The tree of life is back. Everything in the book of Revelation is coming to this point. Overcome Because Jesus overcame and he will overcome and the kingdom will be restored. So I have three quick thoughts for you before I wrap up. One, be hopeful. (laughs) When you read this book this week, if you're going to dive in, if you're way far behind, it's okay. Just skip ahead to here. It's fun. Uh, uh, Be hopeful. As you read this book, we are working for a kingdom that will not fail and for a king who is a good king and you have hope because your life is not meaningless. It is not. And be hopeful. The second thing I want you to do is be ready. Pray. Pray it often. Pray, come Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I used to... um, I remember when I was younger, I used to say, Jesus, could you hold off on your second coming, coming back until some things have happened that I want happen in my life, you know? Like, could you let me get married first, right? Or then it was, once I got married, was, well, could you hold off till I can have some kids? And I'd like to experience that. And so uh, I, he, he's been waiting a long time. Um, so, you know, uh, or then I used to think, well, uh, God, you know, just hold off until I get into ministry because I really want to serve the church and, and just hold off. Like the longer... I'm in this. The longer I live, the more I just say, no, come, Lord Jesus. This is not to be feared in terror, but this is exciting and hopeful. Come back, Jesus. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. It becomes all the more reason why we should be obedient and faithful and overcome. And that's the third thing I would tell you is overcome. Jesus is coming back. Be victorious. Don't quit. Don't cave to culture. Don't bow the knee to another. Don't lose your first love, as Jesus tells the church. Overcome, persevere, and fight to achieve what he promises. This is really good. This week, would you be hopeful? Would you fight to overcome? Would you claim 
the great blessings that Jesus promises for you because you're hopeful. Would you live as an overcomer? Jesus, thank you for this book. Thank you for how exciting it is to read about a world where your kingdom's restored, where the curse is broken and people are restored perfectly to right relationship with you. We have so much to look forward to. And we welcome you, Jesus, to come back and rule. Be our king. Allow us the grace to persevere and to overcome, to be victorious with one eye always on your coming. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.